Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Okay, welcome to the eighth encounter of the Bullshit Artists. I'm Rory Verado here with Jack Crittenden. How you doing, Jack? Rory, I am absolutely average. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? You're doing well. I'm doing pretty well. Been doing a ton of hiking, which I know is a great interest to you. And uh, like hiking. Not, <laughs> yeah. Not in, not in these temperatures, but uh, in your temperatures, that'd be great. It's a little better, you know, it's about 10 degrees uh, cooler up here, maybe more. It's 90 today. Uh, but I try to get out by eight and, and done by noon. So, yeah, yeah, that goes a long way. That's pretty good if you're hiking for four hours. Yeah, that's just an estimate. I mean, that's I, between two and four. I did a 10 miler last Friday, which was pretty brutal. It took me about four hours. That's really good. Good for you. But of course, you're young, <laughs> ish, vigorous. Yes. So, so just, for oh, for the ahead. viewers, uh, could you display your shirt? Oh, sure. Lean back and give them a give give them a view of how Ken Wilber looks today. <laughs> yeah, this is decidedly not current day Ken, but I do have a Ken Wilber T-shirt on. That's all I got. You just wanted to show it. I just wanted you to, to show it to the viewers to make the listeners envious that they're not watching. As they should be. As um, they should be. Yeah, I think maybe we'll, he, he might come up a little bit or his work because I had been reading some stuff um, that links in with the developmental theory that you and I, and of course Ken, are uh, pretty interested in. But I wanted actually to start with this, something that I found uh, was perhaps the most intriguing and terrifying thing that I've heard politically in, in recent times. I don't know if you heard this, but there was a, a conservative, I guess, radio host, commentator of some kind who floated to Donald Trump the idea of his running for a uh, seat in the House of Representatives in 2022. Did you hear about this? I don't understand why that would be appealing. He, he's going to be reinstated in August as president <laughs> of the United States. Yes, of course. So as we all know, <laughs> the, the uh, Biden presidency is illegitimate and they're just waiting to reinstall, you know, dear leader. But, you know, let's let's assume or let's let's imagine for a moment that that occasion does not come to pass. Trump was very taken by this idea. It was Wayne Allen Root who proposed it. I don't really know much about him. He seems like a Rush Limbaugh type. But uh, the idea was Trump runs, 
uh, he becomes he, he sort of leads a red wave, which is probably coming anyway because the Democrats are fucking horrible and the Biden administration is a catastrophe, in my opinion. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, so I think the red wave is coming anyway. But but if Trump is leading the charge, uh, it could galvanize support for Republicans who we know have many structural advantages in congressional elections, including gerrymandering. And he could be made Speaker of the House and initiate and preside over impeachment proceedings, right? Now, this gets into the real conservative conspiracy stuff. This is their pathway to making Trump president again. I don't think that's going to come to pass. However, I genuinely, I do think it's very possible, if not likely, that if Trump ran for a House seat in Florida, he would win. And moreover, the, the Republicans would take the House and make him speaker of it. What, what's your first impression to that? My first impression is that that will never happen. <laughs> okay, why? Trump, it, Trump does not want to be one of a 435. Mm. He does not want to be Speaker of the House because that may require him to do something. If you can be Speaker of the House with the title and yet do nothing, fob off all the work to your deputy speaker. Yeah, McCarthy or whatever that. that yeah, that might be appealing, but what what he's he first of all, Republicans he would fit in because Republicans don't want to legislate any more than he does, but he doesn't want to do any work. All he wants is the attention. So he would then be competing with other people who want attention. Yes, like the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Jim Jordans, those those folks. Now they might fall in line, but. I just can't imagine Trump doing it. He, he cannot possibly fit into a club <laughs> where he isn't the leader. I just don't see it happening. And again, it, the Speaker of the House, I, it just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem elevated enough for him, especially since he's been president. He would mm. want to treat the speakership as the presidency. Well, that's precisely my fear. And that's actually why I think he might do it is that he would just, he would have these cronies like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and he would have that title, which does carry some weight to it. Uh, it's not the president, but it's, it's number two, right? In the line of succession, or after the vice president. Um, and I, I just, to me, it just strikes me as like this possibility for a consolidation of power uh, in a, in a, in a broader sense, like step outside the existing constitutional system and consider the possibility that we're transforming from something like a democratic Republic, really a corporatocracy into overt neo-fascism. To me that it seems possible that Trump then, I mean, as we talked about last time, some 50 plus percent of Republican, uh, voters, believe that Trump is still president and that they'll, and more, more than that, even believe that the last election was illegitimate. So if he assumes control uh, in that way, I think it could, it could lead to some kind of fracturing of the branches of government where he, it's like a parallel shadow presidency almost. 
I can, well, it would keep the Secret Service on their toes <laughs> because there isn't any question that uh, it would ramp up the alt-right in their interest in assassinating Biden <coughs> and Harris to then have Trump step into the presidency as the, as the third in line, as the second in line. He might do it for that. I mean, if he had Roger Stone and Bannon saying, well, we'll make sure that Biden and Harris are eliminated. Right. And you can become president. Then he might very well say, I want to keep the Speaker of the House as well as become president. And, uh, but I, 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 what does the Congress do? What power does it have? Mm. It does have the, it does have the power to impeach. Okay, they impeach Biden on some trumped up charge. I, I don't think, uh, depending on what happens in 2022, that it would get through the Senate. It's two thirds, right? It requires mm-hmm. two thirds. That's not going to happen. Yeah, I don't think a conviction uh, would happen unless somehow they miraculously okay, have two thirds. So, yeah, so it's, a, it's some fake show impeachment. Okay. Big deal. I, I, just, they, I, I don't know. Yes, maybe. Yes, that would be two things would fall from that. One would be the uh, attempt by the right maybe to eliminate Biden and Harris. OK, and move, then reinstate, reinstall Trump for sure. That's the first part. The second part is it would turn government into show business. It would be complete show business. I and mean, not that it isn't now, but it would become show business. There's nothing... What could Republicans possibly do? They're not going to legislate. What they're not interested in legislation, right. and even if they are, it would be vetoed by the president. Then they'd have to try to override it. I don't think he would do it. I I just can't imagine him doing it. Well, he I have to say he responded very positively when the guy proposed it, but Trump says. That's a great idea to lots of things. See, and he's a lazy. Yeah, it's a great idea. You know, I would be a tremendous speaker, the best speaker ever. Tremendous. Exactly. Be nobody better than me. I'd be great. That's That's pretty. Trump. Pretty much how he reacted, but it. I mean, it. I still think it makes some strategic sense because the guy was also framing it as like a launching pad, and we have to keep in mind that like Trump is starved for attention. Right. That's the only thing he cares about. He's like the most narcissistic person literally ever to walk. the. Ladies and gentlemen, Rory has frozen in place. So I'm going to assume there's no recording going on. OK. Yeah. All right. As I was saying. <laughs> yes. Yes. He, he's the most narcissistic person ever. And he's starved for attention and he's been deplatformed off of Facebook till at least 2023, Twitter for life. His little baby blog that he made for himself just got shut down after like a month. His like Twitter clone where he was the only one that could tweet, as I'm sure you probably saw, he he shut that down because nobody was reading it. Right. And uh, so that's that's where I think his motivation might come from. He's been embarrassed by the loss to Biden. He wants attention. And this, at least the framing that was given by this conservative commentator, appealed to Trump. So I do think that he might actually do it. Now, he just may as well not, but I wouldn't dismiss it personally out of hand. 
because I think it has some logic to it. And it does, it really strikes me, you know, I don't know quite enough about Weimar Germany to make the connection here, but I do know that Hitler was not what? Chancellor? He, he was not president, essentially, you know, no. as he rose to no, power. He was, he was chancellor. He, okay, he was chancellor, but chancellor, not, but, but not uh, president. Hindenburg, Hindenburg was president. Yeah. yeah, Hindenburg was president, right. So it's, it was so actually Hindenburg who had to okay Hitler moving into the chancellery. Okay. And I mean, I personally stood and watched the inauguration in 2017. And I, you know, Joe Biden shook Trump's hand and welcomed him to the presidency. I could see him very well doing the same thing if Trump becomes Speaker of the House. Well, Biden will have to be dead at that point. <laughs> Why? For him to welcome Trump to the presidency. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, not the presidency. The, the speakership yeah, under I, this cockamamie I, scheme. I just think it's too boring. It, it requires some work. It requires some level of focus. I just don't but think- But from him? Do, from others, from his toadies, sure. I suppose, yeah. If you can, if you can get away with just being the the front man for the Republicans as a speaker, but I, I think he has responsibilities. I I don't really know. I, I just think it would be demeaning for Trump to <laughs> run for a House seat. Uh, but maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Quincy it, Adams. One did good it. news. The one good bit of news for him would be it would keep him campaigning in Florida. <laughs> which means that when the indictment comes and DeSantis refuses to extradite Trump to New York, he can remain in Florida. Now, of course, he won't be able to go to D.C., so this will be a new way of a speakership run remotely from Mar-a-Lago. Then if he's president, of course, he can't be indicted because he's president, and we now know that the no Justice Department, Democrat or Republican, would deign to indict Trump or somehow investigate him, which is another topic of concern. The the failure to Garland, pursue. The, yeah, the Garland Department of Justice, which appears to be uh, toothless, where Barr's was viciously partisan. Garland seems utterly inept. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Barr's uh, strikes me as having been the sort of the most powerful uh, attorney general in some time. Yes, right? it, interesting. He, his business card would be interesting because it would say William Barr, attorney general slash personal lawyer for the president. Right. Yeah, I guess that's. Or maybe he doesn't have to say attorney general. You could just say personal lawyer for the president or just say attorney general. Because he was personal lawyer for the president. Yeah, it, this consigliere, is consigliere, right? He was Robert Duvall in The yeah. Godfather. Yeah, sorry. Yes, thank you for clarifying. <laughs> I didn't understand. Yes, Tom Hagen, I believe, was the character's name. There you go. <laughs> yeah, where's Luca Brazzi when you need him? <laughs> With the fishes, unfortunately. Yes, that's right. Uh, it, it's interesting theory about Trump. Yes, at least it isn't running for the Senate, which would be just Trump would never do that. That would be God awful. A club yeah. of 100 people. Where, oh, yeah, that would be terrible. I th and I think that's that had been um, what people in his circle were urging him to do prior to this idea having been floated was to run for Senate. 
Well, I which thought makes they were, no sense to me. They were going to run Ivanka, a primary Ivanka. Uh, sorry, primary Rubio with Ivanka. That was uh, my understanding. Oh, I guess they could do that too simultaneously, have a full family assault there. As you may know, I wrote uh, a short piece in for Medium called Follow the Leader about who, who could follow Trump. Right. And uh, I, I mentioned Tucker Carlson, affectionately known by Joy Ann Reed as Tuckums, which I think is a fantastic name. But in it, I mentioned the, uh, the complete disappearance of the three uh, stooges, the three Trump children, Ugh. completely fallen away. Uh, so Ivanka has got, a, maybe she's, she's prepping for her run against Rubio. I don't know what the hell she's doing. Yeah, she's gone quiet for a while. Yeah. She was pretty prominent uh, in the administration. And of course, all the nepotism with Kushner and solving the crisis in the Middle East, which he, he did a bang up job really there. Well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah I think I think that may be a calculated strategy on her part to shut up uh, and let things dissipate for a while. But yeah, that's not going to happen. But um, yeah, she'll have to step out. She'll have to step out into the limelight if she's serious about running. But I, you know, I don't know. I don't put anything past this family. Uh, I don't know. Yes, Trump, go ahead. Run for some congressional seat in Congress. Go ahead. My, my concern, one of my concerns is, as you've also written about on Medium, I don't think this was put into your, into your book because it's a little older, but you were one of the first, I think, to write about how the followers of Trump are, you know, it's a cult. It's, it's not just right. metaphorically a cult. It's like literally a cult. Yeah. And uh, so that is in the book. Oh, is it? Okay. I couldn't remember yeah, if that there's, one. There's a chapter there, the, the cult of Trump. Okay. Yeah. So where I yeah. did, I did, as you say, I tried to, to actually demonstrate how and why it's a cult. It's not just a throwaway line that people like to use but I think it actually is a cult. Right. Yeah. Like it, it functions as one. It can be, uh, you can sort of predict or uh, at least comprehend uh, the collective behavior, I think, better if you conceive of it as a cult instead of simply sure. as like a mass movement or something like that. Because, I mean, for me, it's the authoritarianism, right, that really binds it all together and is... I think a key feature of all cults. Yeah, well, the, the authoritarianism resting on some wobbly platform of ideology or uh, crazy theories, which, which we have in abundance with the Trump cult. But it's the same idea. I mean, they, you know, the, 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 the platforms are, are pretty easy to identify. You can just, in other words, you just strike out Jew and put in person of color. Right. Well, Mexicans, right? That was the first when Trump came down that escalator in 2016. They're rapists, yeah. he said, you know. Yeah, that was that. Yes, that was one angle. But remember, he begins as a birther, right? He begins as a, true. As a true racist against Obama. 
and uh, <laughs> claiming that he had sent investigators to Hawaii and they were uncovering amazing things about about uh, what Obama was hiding. Of course, he had nothing. There was nothing there. But yes, yeah, so that that was yeah. a racist toot of his horn. <laughs> yeah. So you you can just you can just fill in the fill in the blanks. I mean that that's the problem. And you see you. You, you see this, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but if you read people like Tim Snyder uh, or the uh, the guy just has a new book out, Ben Rhodes, mm-hmm. or follow Seth Abramson, who wrote a trilogy on the Trump crime family, you, you, you see the playbook. It's a, as you say, it's an authoritarian playbook. That's this, the centerpiece of all this. But it's not authoritarian in that, it's authoritarian in that they they want power. It it's just neo-fascist in in their trimming. How do you mean? Like it's well, a, it's aesthetic more so than yeah, yeah the whole the whole thing. I I don't know that every authoritarian is is a fascist. I think we can see that 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 doesn't necessarily hold historically. Mm. But the neo-fascist label for Trump is a good one because it has the elements of fascism. It has mostly has elements of Nazism in it, the National Socialist side, with the scapegoating of some some group. Uh, yeah, the the America First nonsense. Although I guess that's also true of every fascist movement. Right. It lacks the it lacks the one fascist flavor that's imp- that has been important historically, and that's the the, the militarism. Trump was interested in ending wars. He, he seemed to be more isolationist. Uh, aside from bullying other countries, he seemed to be more isolationist, uh, not interested in, in some imperial, laying some imperial footprint anywhere, which is a hallmark. Militarism is a hallmark of, of the fascists. Yes. So, yeah. So the, you're right. The authoritarian strand is the, is the strong one. And yet, I, I agree. Like rhetorically, he has been anti-interventionist, and he uh, uh, he actually, I think, his administration drew up some of the plans to get out of Afghanistan, but right. he was thwarted, you know. And then Biden now is basically implementing Trump's plan, which is which is good. If it actually happens, it won't. But you know, um, you you think the is it what a September deadline? Is September eleventh, you know, of course. All oh, right, eleven. So you think that's not going to happen? No, not a chance. What I, would what would cause them, in your estimation, to stay? To stay, yeah. I think. Um, I think what will happen is what sort of has already happened at least once before, which will be a, a partial withdrawal, a reduction in a, in activities, and then either a subsequent surge or and or um the increasing presence of private contractors which has been the story of afghanistan all along right from the beginning it's uh, the military presence has gone down the contractors have gone up and uh yeah so i think it's just going to be a bait and switch uh you know because biden said in like 2013 or something when he was vice president that they, that we were going to be out of there by, you know, whatever date he gave at that time, the next year or something. It's just not going to happen. I'll, I'll be astonished. I mean, I'm hopeful. I'm opti- I'm not optimistic, though. Yeah, I, I think they'll I think we'll be out. 
I think he, 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 I think he wanted to get the troops out. I think he does power to do it. I do think he genuinely wants to. Yeah. Yeah. I I think unlike Obama, he is not cowed by the generals. I think he'll stand up to them. I think they'll do it. It, it, We're already seeing what is going to happen. The Taliban is already seizing territory. They're already uh, trying to inhibit women, girls from attending school. Mm. Although that one may be difficult for them to, to actually shut down. But I, I, th- I don't know what would keep us in Afghanistan. I don't know what it would be. There, there are no economic interests there. I don't think we really care about the people. Uh, we, we wanted to go after the terrorists. It, and I, but I think you're, you're also right. I was thinking it wouldn't be contractors. It would be small subsets of special forces who would be there to take out specific targets. I think it would be a combination of those yeah. things. Yeah. So, but I don't think the presence will be there. I think it'll be, be very small. And then we'll see what happens with the Taliban in Pakistan. Right. And uh, because with their attention with America gone, their attention can then be turned to Pakistan. And that could be a shit show. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, the conflict, <clears throat> conflicts in the Middle East are going to continue with or without the United States um, overt presence there but yeah you're you're you're, yeah what yeah well i wonder i wanted to know if you wanted to drift into the palestine israeli conflict or is that too tender no i mean it's tender for many people and i and certainly people much more prominent than either of us have had their careers demolished uh, just for speaking out in support of Palestine, but uh, neither of us really give a fuck. So, um, you know, and I've already written uh, a little bit about <laughs> Well, <it>. unlike <laughs> you, I have no reputation to build. I'm already on the downturn. So yeah. I'm happy to, to slide with more speed to the, to the precipitate end. You, on the other hand, may actually have somewhere you want to go. So yeah. You- However, I don't want to go anywhere that is going to, you know, uh, support crimes against humanity and war crimes and genocide and all these kinds of things, which is what's happening there. Would it be, in your estimation, a war crime if it turned out that the Hamas rockets were more effective at killing Israelis? Would Would Hamas be committing a war crime in that case? Yeah. In other words, we, we know that they have that, I can't remember what it's called, the defense system, the dome of iron or whatever the whatever oh, it's called. Yeah. You know, that 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 can eliminate many of the incoming rockets. Right. If they were more effective at actually killing people, would would you say that Hamas was committing a war crime? Or is your position that because they are oppressed, they they can't be in a position to be guilty of a war crime? That's a good question. And I think it like, it's so, I think it would require like more contextual particulars, you know, to, to assess each example. Like, so um, if Hamas were successful at um, killing Israeli military in a counter-strike for, for instance, 
I would be more inclined to say, no, that's just obviously self-defense. But if they're knocking down civilian buildings and killing civilians by the hundreds or something, then, yeah, that's going to veer into crimes against humanity, even if, as I do believe, Hamas, well, not, I shouldn't say Hamas, the Palestinians. Hamas is just a small, relatively small, you know, radicalized expression of, uh, retribution and self-defense i think against the overwhelming oppression that the israelis are enacting and have enacted for decades against the the palestinians generally right so in other words we i think we should be careful not to conflate palestinians with hamas in the same in the way that we might more closely identify the israeli government with israelis i think the israeli state and the government itself has more popular support amongst Israelis. I'm not sure well, I, what the popular support of, of Hamas is amongst Palestinians, but that's just my impression. Well, so just a little pushback on that. Sure. So Israel has a democracy based on, on a parliamentary system. So they have multiple parties and those multiple parties interact in, in certain ways. As we can see now, they're trying to construct a coalition government. Right, because Netanyahu's on his way out, right? Yeah, whether Bibi's uh, uh, going to be the prime minister or they're going to have an, another ultra-right winger, right? There's a, I think there's a, an agreement, right, that the ultra-right, the guy who's even to the right of Bibi would serve for some period of time, and then he would be replaced by somebody who's on the left. I can't remember what his name. But it seems to me that that is, yes, as you say, that could be representative of the of the Israeli, of the uh, people of Israel, because it is this coalition government. It is a parliamentary system. In Palestine, it seems to be all or nothing. You have, you have Hamas uh, elected and in charge, and Abbas and his Fatah. Are they still Fatah? No, there's something else. Wasn't Fatah and the party before i can't remember anyway my know. point is that it's hard not to say that hamas represents the palestinians because they are the government in power mm. true right? but not of a not of a of a real state i mean this not is of a real I, state yeah this is not right. something that i'm like deeply <clears throat> you know it's not a hill i'm gonna die on like i'm will i would even just concede outright that indeed hamas is representative of palestine because it doesn't change my position you know in response to your question which is that like for me in in broad strokes like at the sort of bedrock principle is that the palestine uh, the palestinians are almost completely subjugated and oppressed by an overwhelmingly awesome power nuclear power that is for all intents and purposes um, the 51st state of the United States, uh, as Joe Biden said uh, about almost 10 years ago, if Israel didn't exist, we'd have to invent it to advance our interests in the region. Well, of course, Israel was invented, right? But that's a different story. For that story. purpose. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think you can make an argument that that is the case, that the hmm. pretext was we want to return the Jewish people to their, their cherished land. Right, the Balfour Agreement, which the Palestinians rejected, 
right? But who cared? And the, 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 the powers, European powers in the United States didn't care. Right. And so they moved Israel in there. And so you say, yes, what a great thing to do to, re- to return the Jews who had been subjugated, persecuted their entire, for, for millennia, mm-hmm. return them to their, their sacred land at the expense of the Palestinians who were already there. And that's, that seems like such a noble and moral thing to do, unless you listen to somebody like Joe Biden rip away the curtain and say, yes, because we have important interests in the Middle East, oil, and we want to have a foothold there. Right. So we'll support Israel to the end and uh, because it serves our interests. Yeah, it's a staging area. You know, it's the it's the largest uh, military base, basically, that the United States has. And indeed, we give them billions of dollars per year in aid. Right. So for, for mostly weapons. And they yeah. there are other connections. Israeli forces uh, are very prominent in the training of United States police officers and departments. They uh, well, and, and we train their pilots. We train their right. special forces. We and they work with ours. Uh, so I'm not as I, I'm hearing you coming out as somebody who might might be described as pro Palestinian. Is that fair to say? Uh, I, th- I think so. I mean, I'm not, I might retract that depending on where you're going with it, but I mean, I don't, I, I, in general, I would not probably take like one side in a binary situation like that. I would just say like, I'm pro not indiscriminately killing people and oppressing them, you know? Yeah. I, I, but it seems to me if that's your position, then you have to be, uh, you also have to be in this, in that instance, the indiscriminate killing of people, anti-Palestinian, mm. because they are launching thousands of rockets at not military targets, population centers. That's not yeah. caring who they kill. So that that's indiscriminate killing. Now, as I said, they're not as successful at it as the Israelis seem to be. Uh, and the Israeli pushback would be, well, we're not indiscriminately killing people. We can't. We're going after the source of the, the fired rockets. And those happen to be placed near schools and hospitals and in population centers. And the AP Bureau. Yeah. So, although I don't know how many people were killed there, but yes, the, knocking I'm not out sure the communication center, but... but knocking out the communication center would be, a, is, is a problem. Yeah. I, I mean, I find the Middle East, the reason I asked you about whether we wanted to drift into this is that it is, it is so complicated. It is so thorny and difficult that I can make arguments on both sides. I, I can make arguments for how the Palestinians are acting. Mm. I can make arguments for how the Israelis are reacting. There are certain things I, I mean, this is, yeah, I, the history is, is fraught uh it's a it's just a mess and that isn't even including the so we've got the the muslims insisting upon their holy sites and their attachment to the land we've got the israelis the jews insisting upon their holy sites and their attachment to land and then we've got the third party the lunatic fundamentalist christians 
who have the view that we have, hang on, our God's, our version of God's got a say in this too, because we want that apocalypse. Right. Right. We need this war to happen. To, so, so the end times will come. You know, you got that baked into this. I know. I was just, I think I'm, I can't remember if I told you I was reading uh, Chris Hedges' uh, American Fascists recently. Are you familiar with that book? No, so I'm familiar wrote, with Hedges, but I'm not familiar with that book. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's a good one. It, he wrote it in like 2004, I think, um, and it's about that faction that you just identified, evan- American Evangelical Christians, and in particular, the most fundamentalist of them. I mean, they're all fundamentalist, but there's a small, um, you know, cohort or whatever that. Uh, is the most fundamentalist, the most sort of um, propelled by the Freudian death drive, you know? Yeah. And they have this, they have this uh, evil bargain with Jewish supremacist Zionists, basically, even though the evangelical Christians think that they're you know those jews are going to hell they don't they don't believe in they haven't accepted jesus in their uh into their lives and so they they don't actually respect or like these uh jewish folks at all but they're a means to an end which is the end that you right. just identified which is right. the they're, apocalypse they're yeah and the yeah. war and all these kinds of things so yeah and insofar as that segment the christian evangelical fundamentalist neo-fascists have gained a stranglehold on the certainly the conservative movement and and probably the republican party um they have worked as we saw with trump's relocation of the capital right or the embassy excuse me the embassy yeah um they have worked hand in glove to promote the most regressive Israeli political interests, and of course, at the expense of the Palestinians. So, yeah, I find it, I, I agree with you that like the history is complicated. The, the factions are many and uh, sort of, it's hard to parse out there why they are even allies. But at the same time, I think you can still identify simple sort of, or you can make relatively simple judgments. Like, so by, by way of analogy, you know, we're both more familiar with American history, surely, than the history of the Fertile Crescent, you know, and we could say, well, uh, with the settlers, the uh, Brit- the colonists, the British colonists, et cetera, and the conflicts with the Native Americans, it was very complicated. There are many different factions, so many different tribes, many different treaties were made, certain things were violated, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, something like 90 plus percent of indigenous peoples in the Americas were killed. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not, it's not that complicated you know, to make that moral assessment of who is exercising force against whom who's doing the genociding and why they should stop. I think. Well, so, 
and your position is the genocide is caught is uh, is pushed by israel they're they are genocidal yes you see i i don't think they are so what do i think, you think some i think some of the behavior I was going to say some of the, some of the behavior might be painted that way. I'm not even sure that's right. The, the problem is that Hamas has a charter that is genocidal. Their charter says Israel is to be obliterated. Mm. So they may not have the, the power to exercise their charter and therefore to exercise their genocide, but they want to. Mm it's what they've declared. I mean, they just stated there that rests on the obliteration of Israel. I'm willing to Uh, believe uh, that. I'm not familiar with the charter, but I would say, you know, why is that surprise? You know, I I would say it's almost justified. Like this is an invading, occupying power that is uh, stripped them of their territory, compressed them. I mean, the Gaza Strip is has like well okay. so many million I, people in it it's and no land there it's it's just hell so, so i think that's a, 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 a slightly different point mm. right? so the, the so if we're talking about genocide is it israel's mission to eliminate all palestinians i don't think it is mm. it certainly doesn't seem to be their mission to eliminate all all arabs no. so because we know that we have we have arab israeli citizens uh who may be disenfranchised in certain ways, but disenfranchised in a very broad sense because they do have the right to vote mm. and they can form political parties. But my point was simply about genocide, which is that you've got one side has a charter that is genocidal. We want to ob- obliterate this country and everybody in it. I don't think Israel has that position. I, I If suddenly the Palestinians uh, elected a peace-seeking party instead of Hamas and recognize the right of Israel to exist. I don't think you would see Israel behaving quite the way it is. I don't, in other words, I don't think they're genocidal. I think they are overly protective. I think they've gone crazy in the West Bank Mm -hmm. and certainly in Gaza. And some of their actions appear to be genocidal. I mean, the level of oppression, I completely agree with you, particularly in Gaza, is unacceptable from any perspective. I don't know how you can look at it any, uh, any other way. Right. And I also, I also agree with you that from the Palestinian perspective, how can Israel be anything but an occupying force? It, it, it's as if the, it, through the Balfour Agreement, United States and European powers were reenacting the Homestead Act that existed in the United States in which you say, we don't give a shit who was on this land. You native Americans, you're off and you people just come on in, put your claim down. And that's almost what seems what it was like. Yeah, put your stake your in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and it becomes yours. Uh, so how, how is Israel not then a, a colonizer? I, I, and certainly what's going on in the West bank, you've got, I'm not sure about the figures, but I I think it's something like 500,000 Israelis Mm. moving into the West Bank. The West Bank, by the way, 
that on Israel's agreement was given to the Palestinians. Now you've got these settlers moving in, 500,000 of them, where there are millions of Palestinians. That looks like an apartheid state, quote, quotes. Right? Yes. Where you have the minority ruling over the majority. Uh, and how do you not say this is nothing but an occupying force? This is nothing. These, these are colonizers. And then Gaza. Oh, fuck. I mean, that, you know, it seems to me that Hamas has done everything wrong. Mm. Any aid that comes in, they, they use it to buy weapons and build these, dig these tunnels, and they're not going for hospitals and schools and libraries. And it just seems that it's, it's just crazy. And you say, well, yes, because they are under siege. Right. Yes, I, yes, they are. And the Israelis keep going in because they're, they feel threatened. And you think, well, that's ridiculous. How can they be threatened when they're a nuclear power with a, with a full army and air force? How is that possible? Uh, well, we know about guerrilla wars. Okay. Uh, I just, that <laughs> this is why I say them. it's, it, it's intractable. It's crazy. Nobody will give in. Nobody will yield. Hamas to its, its credit is saying we're supporting the Palestinians and the Palestinians agree because they vote them in. Israel is saying we're afraid because you're genocidal and you want to get rid of us. So we need to protect ourselves. And we do that by securing and expanding our borders. I think that's a mistake. I, 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 yeah. So I'm sorry we drifted into this. I want to throw no. my hands up. No, I think away. it's, I think it's a good conversation to have. I, I, you know, of course the caveat for both of us is that we're not experts in this. We're just intelligent, intelligent, somewhat intelligent and partially informed bullshitters. Partially informed. And, and <laughs> I have to say, and frightened, frightened by what's going on, why it won't seem to end where yes. it could end up. Yes. Uh, I think, I mean, I, I have been, um, not reading so much, but listening and watching interviews, uh, with more and more people talking about this topic in an effort to, to learn a little bit more. And, um, one of the segments I saw that really stuck with me was like this, I forget who it was done by, but they were just interviewing, is average Israeli people just stopping them on the street and asking them, you know, and I, I think it was in Tel Aviv or like, you know, a, a major urban area and asking them, you know, what should be done about the situation? What's going on? What do you think? And like the number of, now this could have been selectively edited, you know, I don't know, yeah. but the number of people, average people on the street who just straight up said we should just kill all the Palestinians was astonishing to me. Like just average people just stop them on the street. And within two seconds, they say, yeah, we should fucking kill these people. They're they're They don't deserve to be here. They're not Jewish. They need to go. They're talking about the Arab Arabs who live within, within the state or they're talking, talking about, about Palestinians, Palestinians in Gaza and, and the West Bank. Yes. And, but I mean, of course, that's going to shade into, you know, not being too enthused about Arabs, I think in the Israeli Arabs either. And I mean that, you know, to just push back slightly against what you were saying earlier about Hamas's charter. Um, first, I would say um, my understanding, limited though it may be, is that Hamas emerged as an attempt to organize a, a political and military resistance effort to the occupation 
and oppression that they were, the Palestinians were enduring. And so, of course, they're going to promulgate a positive program of, you know, genocide. But to me, that's just another way to read that is like self-defense. Like our, our, our platform is to kill the people who are trying to fucking exterminate us by any means necessary. So it's like, you know, if Ho Chi Minh says death to the Americans, I, I get it and I with him, I'm with him, you know, and I, and I support the South Vietnamese resistance. Same, same thing here or North Vietnamese, whichever the fucking one it was. North. Um, yeah, I didn't want to say Viet Cong because I know that's passe, but <laughs> um, yeah. Although there's that great line from Muhammad Ali what does he say? Uh, something like, I ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong. What do I want to go over there for? Well, yeah, he said, no Viet Cong ever called me N-word. Right, right. Yeah, that, yeah, we'll really get canceled if you drop that one. Yeah. Uh, but um, what was I, where was I going with this? Okay, so to my, again, limited understanding, Hamas is engaged in legitimate and justified self-defense, even if it's couched in aggressive terms. Setting that aside just for a second, um, I would say that is, so you were saying that Israel is not explicitly genocidal, but how else can we construe a constitution and a, a plan for settlement that is expressly uh, like Jewish exclusionist? Like it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Jewish state. Well, right. n- not yet. That hasn't happened yet. But that's there. That's the purpose. And that's the intent. And like that. So that, that's why the Palestinians. Have I, been I don't think out. either it's... one of the I don't think either one of those is true. OK, I don't think it was the purpose or the intent. OK, my understanding is it is, but I could definitely be wrong. It, so. uh, my sense of it is if it becomes a Jewish state. Then it ceases to be a democracy because you have. Arab Israeli Arabs living in within the firm borders of Israel. And if it's a Jewish state and they're not Jewish, then they are by definition disenfranchised. Right. That hasn't happened. It wasn't intended that way. And it hasn't happened yet. The settlements are not part of the Israeli constitution. That's extra legal. That's, sure. that, that is part of Bibi's support by and support of being supportive of the orthodox and the alt-right within Israel. I mean, that's a crime. There isn't any way, I don't see any way you can describe that, these, the incursion of settlements as a crime. The West Bank was territory designated for the Palestinians, and that's an invasion. But hasn't, just to, just to interject, that hasn't that, I mean, I agree with you completely, but it's not like that uh, just happened out of nowhere. There was decades of pushing them, pushing the Palestinians yes. further no. and further out of their territory. And like yeah, all uh, of that was programmatic, you know, with the well, it, project of creating Israel. It's more, I think it's more inchoate. I don't think it's, I don't know that anyone, because it would become, I think the fact that it is led by settlers takes it away from being sanctioned by the government. This is a lot of wink, winking going on here. Right. But I, it, I, and I also don't see any way you can defend what I think is the level of oppression 
leveled against the Palestinians in Gaza. I would be fine if Hamas said, we are going this is our territory and we're going to defend it. And we're going to defend it against colonizers and invaders. But that's not what they're saying. Their, their charter is to eliminate Israel. And so they, in response to the invasion, they bombard civilian targets. That then gets a, that gets a retaliatory action by Israel. So it's never fucking ending. Right. This, yeah. And I don't see how it can. And because they've completely taken off the two stage uh, the two state solution. I mean, it, it, so Israel says, you know, if it, Palestinians, if you would yield on this genocidal charter of yours, we would feel more secure in our borders. And then we could talk about a two state solution to which the Hamas and the Palestinians say, if you would withdraw your troops, stop oppressing us, you know, controlling our water, controlling our electricity, boycotting our goods so that our GDP has fallen off by 50%. If you stop doing that, then we could talk about a two-stage solution. No, no, nobody will give in here, right? right. And, and it doesn't appear that any external force, the United States or anybody else, except for, of course, grand Jared Kushner, has any influence at all. And I don't know where the the other uh, Arabian countries are. I don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. Why, why aren't they involved here? I know. What, what I find they, that interesting as well. The, the Palestinian, there's, there seems to be very little Arab solidarity uh, with the Palestinians. And, I, you know, I'm, some of it strikes me as understandable because who wants to invite Israel and the United States's wrath, you know? Uh, well, as, but but are there diplomatic and uh, intercessionist forces from the Arab world? Are they in there trying to figure out something to do? I mean, they don't they don't have to side with you know Hamas and well, I mean Hamas is an offshoot of of Iran, so sure. okay, so there's a side there, and then of course the Saudis and all these other countries have deals with the United States economic deals, weapons deals. So they don't want to screw with that. Yeah, I think I I, I don't know. To me, it really it's sort of and it is sort of depressing to think about, because, as you say, it's intractable and and unsolvable. Um, You know, yeah, yeah. And part of that reason is it it goes back to religion. Right. I I, which, you know, I just roll my eyes at this. That God gave us this land, really? <laughs> really? It's, so it's all the it's all the Abrahamic tradition. So it should be the same God, right? God's confused. Then, who's got the land? Is it the <laughs> is it the Palestinians and the Arabs? Because that's their land from Allah. No, 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 no. This comes no. from Yahweh. No, 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 no. It doesn't. This, Jesus this comes from, <laughs> yeah, this comes from, from Jesus saying, this is what we need to do. I'm not coming back unless you people do this. Yep. My hands are up in the air, throwing them up. I, I agree. I mean, I, and I do find it fascinating how like the religious elements are intertwined politically because it's, it's not either or, right? I have seen some attempts to sort of erase the political aspects the more the more secular you know or in modern political aspects of 
this conflict and just say, oh, it's all religion. You know, it's all, it's just this uh, primordial conflict amongst the Abrahamic religions, which is, I mean, there's, that's part of it. It's a significant part, but it's not all of it. And I wouldn't say it's even necessarily most of it. Uh, But I guess, what did I want to say? Oh, I just wanted to say like, in light of all of this, uh, and what you were saying about the seeming impossibility of resolving it, especially given the role that the United States plays, it really just strikes me that the Palestinians are, they're the ones under the heel of the boot, our boot, you know, the, the American empire's boot. Not that there aren't other places being stepped on, you know, of course, all of Latin America since the Monroe Doctrine, but but I think most pointedly, the Palestinians. No one cares about them. No one speaks for them. There seems to be no one coming to their aid. They're just being eliminated. That's that's a trajectory I see. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. Well. We're starting to go in circles here. I was going to say, I don't see it because I don't see Israel as having a genocidal commandment. But where is it? What's going to happen? Where, like, where is it headed? You know? Well, it, it's, it, it, will, it will inch along as it's going. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know where it's headed. There will be more, more and more settlements taking over the West Bank. Uh, there'll be more incursions into, there'll be more pressure put on Gaza to stop the rocket attacks, uh, which the Palestinian people apparently feel that Hamas speaks for them and can defend them in some way. They're the ones who will be forceful, mm. which then, we, again, we're back, to, we're back to the same cycle, which then incurs violent retaliation, which then leads to more rocket fire, which then leads to more retaliation and, and more clamping down. I, I don't know. You need that uh, philosopher king, Rory. We need you over there. Yeah, right. Get over there. Some. Sort this out. We. I would love some enlightened leadership um, everywhere, but it doesn't seem to be forthcoming. Not so long as the unenlightened have their fingers on the triggers and their thumbs on the buttons for the bombs yeah but i guess maybe this will i have one more comment about this it might pivot us into something else as i wanted to mention one of the people i've been listening to and being informed on this topic by is a guy named uh gabor mate have you ever heard of him you familiar with him at all not right now Okay. I just thought maybe because he's, I think he's a psychologist or a psychiatrist and he's, um, he's probably about your age, but he was talking and he's Jewish. Um, his son is also a journalist who has debunked Russiagate extensively. So uh, I know that's something that will appeal to you, but <laughs> yes, I think we should take a turn into that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we could, maybe we can, but I just wanted to mention he has spoken about how something you alluded to earlier, that it's important to have a trauma informed uh, understanding of uh, Israel's existence and its politics and policies. 
right? So as uh, the trauma, the collective trauma of the Holocaust, uh, you know, uh, impelled uh, the creation of Israel and uh, in many ways continues to undergird its sort of internal propaganda. One example he gave was the way in which, well, as we know, military service is mandatory in Israel. Uh, and I guess they have this government program that transports young uh, conscripts to uh, Dachau, Auschwitz, other places to visit the site sites of the Holocaust and to sort of, you know, uh, engender a love of country and a desire to defend and make sure that that never happens again. And he explained how this has been ratcheted up, you know, by right-wingers, neo-fascists like Netanyahu, and that this is what has actually led to Israel taking that more explicitly genocidal turn. Whereas I, I think I agree with you that it, it certainly didn't start off that way. Um, at least not consciously or intentionally, but an exclusivist state is going to have that outcome, I, I would argue. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that because I think it's an important point that having this trauma-informed perspective, and I wish that we would apply it to all politics, uh, you know, including politics and political history here in the United States. Obviously, this would apply most clearly to like the Black Lives Matter movement, but also indigenous liberation and others. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if you want to take a turn to something else, happy to do either. That seems sensible that we keep a, what was your phrase, a trauma-induced? Informed perspective. A trauma-informed perspective? Yeah. Yeah, that seems important. <laughs> no deep response. Huh? <laughs> well, what would it be? I mean, what, what, <laughs> how is that almost not self-evident? Oh, <laughs> well, I don't think it is self-evident. I don't, I don't think people, first of all, most, certainly most Americans are either un or anti-historical and trauma is necessarily an historical phenomenon. And so I think there's a tendency to just be completely un either unaware of or unwilling to uh, consider the historical, the continuing historical significance of arguably the most traumatic collective experience in human history, the Holocaust. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't commenting on the response to that perspective. I was commenting on holding that perspective. Oh yeah. And I was, it, 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 it strikes me as self-evident that that is a perspective worth holding. Yes, sure. I, yeah. I in no way think that people will respond to it. Yeah. Right. As if we would suddenly say, oh, my God, what have we done to the Native Americans? What have we done to formerly enslaved people? What have we done to the black community? What are we doing to brown people in this country? What are we doing to people at the border? No. no. But holding that as looking at, at your life through through a lens of trauma is I think one worth, worth having or your life, meaning the life of your community, the life of your, your society. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I find it interesting that in order to operate through a trauma-informed perspective, Israelis seem to have to violate the very things that they fought against and argued against with the Nazis. In other words, another case of an antiadromia. That they appear to be doing things to the to the Palestinians that they would want to avoid having done to them. Because this the the, the level the level of oppression, the creation of second class citizens, uh, all of that that's that's going on, the trauma they're inducing in the Palestinian population, that's the very thing that they don't want done to them. But again, I understand it because if we go back to this this issue about Hamas being the leading political force in the Gaza Strip, and it's a, it's a genocidal organization. So I can see that they react strongly. Yeah, so we're back to where we were. I think we should pivot to Russiagate. <laughs> okay. So I think this is a perfect segue because since we have tiptoed our way into a uh, minor disagreement sure. on the Middle East, where both of us will acknowledge we're not experts, we don't really know what we're talking about, we try to be informed, but it's com- complicated and we don't understand all the size of it and the history of it and all that. Let's go into what I th- could be a full-blown disagreement on yes. uh, Russiagate and, okay. uh, and Maddow. Oh, your BFF. Right. Okay. So what do you do? You, do you want to make a claim or should I make one that we can respond to? What do you, how do you want to proceed? Well, I think you referred to the guy whose name I've now forgotten. Uh, Gabor as, Mate and then Aaron Mate. Yeah. As, so, as, diving into the uh, Russiagate hoax or what, however you want to look at it. So yes. uh, yeah, what's either your perspective built out of months, if not years of looking into this or what's his perspective, whatever sure. you want to do. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll try to articulate. I don't necessarily have like a completely coherent uh, argument at my fingertips but I'm there sure we this, go. this this will this will get That's drawn where we out. Want to start. Yeah, right. I have no clue what the fuck I'm talking about. Uh, it will get drawn out as we go back and forth. Is what I'm trying to okay. say. I didn't know okay. I was going to be giving like a deposition on Russia Gate today. You got me. Okay, you know, Mr. Well, Mueller. We can but, start in a territory that might be more familiar to would you, to you, which would be your animus toward Rachel Maddow. Okay, sure. Yeah, and I mean why that why that exists. Okay, then let's sort of start with that little I guess corner of of the issue, which for me And I should tell you that I I have family and friends who are keenly interested in your perspectives on this. Ah, okay, because they are MSNBC Kool-Aid drinkers or they maybe they agree more with me or or you don't want to uh, say I will I will permit them to stand on the sidelines for the time being. Okay. As as observers they're spectators but they're interested they're they're right. not uh what the hell they're not impartial spectators like smith might uh, right, not right that's right <laughs> the impartial observer 
right. Okay. Right. So, yeah. So the Maddow is emblematic for me of one of the most pernicious aspects of the Russia gate, what I would call, I don't even like to use the word conspiracy or conspiracy theory, because I don't know if you know this, you probably do since you lived through the Kennedy era and the Warren commission, but conspiracy theory as a term of art was popularized by the CIA for the express purpose of um, sort of marginalizing uh, any opposition to the lone gunman single bullet theory uh, of the Kennedy assassination. And this is well documented uh, in a book called The uh, Conspiracy Theory in America by somebody whose name I've forgotten. So I don't really like to call it. Hang a con- on. I want to make sure I understand what you said. Yeah. You're saying that it was the CIA that introduced attempts to marginalize the single shooter theory? Opposition to it. Okay. I thought you said that that, that theory. Okay. Yes. The opposition to that. Yes. Yeah. Anybody who questioned the official findings that what's his name uh, was the lone gunman. <laughs> the Lee, Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald. Who right. then conveniently was taken out on live television by Jack Ruby, you know. Right. Uh, so certain, yeah, definitely nothing nefarious there. Um, but okay. That's just a bit of an aside because I don't really like to talk about, I don't like to dismiss things as conspiracies or conspiracy theories because much of what I believe is so often dismissed by others as conspiracy or conspiracy theories, like my thoughts about the September 11th attacks. But the issue for me with Russiagate um, in terms of Maddow and the propagandistic function is that there's this longstanding history in the United States going back at least to the early 20th century of the Red Scare, right? There's the first Red Scare. There's the second Red Scare. There's the Cold War. There's been the Russian boogeyman uh, at the American doorsteps for a century. And of course, McCarthy, McCarthyism and McCarthyite smears through the House Un-American Activities Committee in the 1950s would be like the most extreme example of uh, or manifestation of this. So I see an historical continuity here that is uh, very clear and that is not novel. And I think Russiagate falls right into that. And so, for example, part of why part of why I would think of Russiagate, I hate even saying fucking Russiagate. Why, when did that ever, Watergate, right? Everything now has gate at the yeah, end of it. Everything has gate. Because of fucking Watergate. But there's no better word to use, so I'm going to use it. Russiagate. Um, but if you, for, what really um, sort of undermines it for me is that if you look at the Russiagate narrative on one hand, but then what Trump was actually doing policy-wise on the other hand, uh, it, it doesn't line up. In other words, Trump was very adversarial to uh, Russia and Russian interests and to Vladimir Putin personally. He's not his buddy. He's not certainly not his 
a Kremlin secret agent going back to 1987, like that fucking moron Jonathan Chait said, uh, literally the dumbest person in political analysis today. What what's what's your what's your evidence that he is? I'm the host now. Well, that can't be. Uh, Rory's completely gone. Hmm. I wonder if it's the Russians or maybe it's the CIA, State Department. For the benefit of our listeners and viewers, this may well be the last podcast that Rory and I do. I expect a knock on the door or a, a kicked in door and brought, Rory will disappear to a black site and it'll be the end. Yeah, I'm going to be renditioned to Guantanamo. Yeah, just to be so, clear, um, my computer just crashed, everyone, and I had to restart it. And, you know, and we're going to continue the conversation now about Russiagate. So where where yes. were we? Because I kind of... So you had said, I had said to you, what is your evidence that... Uh, Trump is hard on Russia and Putin. Okay, good question. So this is this would be an example of I wish I had like prepped for this uh, debate or discussion, so I could have that evidence at my fingertips. But I know that uh, there were troops moved into I think Crimea. There was that missile attack. Ukraine. That Ukraine. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So there were, there's Russia has interest in Ukraine and, and other areas where the United States under Trump was acting antagonistically uh, toward those Russian interests. So where, where we might expect Trump, if he was, you know, Putin's puppet or whatever to uh, surreptitiously advance Russian interests, he was actually, working to undermine uh, those interests. But that uh, that's just, that's the one example that I have uh, in mind. Like I said, there are others, I just don't have them at my fingertips right now. There, there were also uh, sanctions placed yeah. on Russia uh, recommended by the State Department. I don't believe they were uh, sanctions. So Obama put sanctions on the Russians when the intelligence services identified the Russians as hacking into our uh, elections. So he put some stringent sanctions on, and then there were recommendations made by the State Department. I, it may have been uh, Trump's own, I don't remember, but the Trump administration put additional sanctions on Russia. Hmm. The Ukraine aspect, I, I don't, I mean, I can push back uh, as you would expect, by suggesting that it wasn't that Ukraine, Ukraine is lost. Uh, sorry, Crimea is lost. Russia has decided that that's their territory. You may have heard this recently. So there's a huge soccer tournament going on, football tournament in Europe called Euro 2020. Mm. It was supposed to be held last year. So they're referring to it as 2020, but it's really Euro 2021. One of the yeah. teams involved uh, either playing in what's called a friendly as a warm up to the tournament, which begins Friday, or one of the teams that is actually in the tournament is Ukraine. Mm. Ukraine had uniforms with the flag, uh, sorry, with the outline of the country Ukraine on their on their jerseys, 
including Crimea, <laughs> which apparently has just bent Putin out of shape. Of course. Because he, he declares that Crimea is Russia's. Anyway, I was going to say there, there are some alternatives in which you could say Trump is friendly with Ukraine because he wanted Ukraine to dig up dirt on Biden. And so he wanted to stay in their good graces and, and dangle some carrots. So one of the carrots would be we'll help fortify you with weapons. That was the whole the bit with Ukraine. We are going to give you military assistance in return. Right. This was I want you to do me a favor, though, that famous phone call. Mm. So you could say it, it wasn't about Putin. It's about the self-interest of Trump sending weapons to Ukraine, which they would use to fight Russians. But, for, but under that pretext, this idea that it's to get political dirt on his political opponent. Anyway, so, I, so the only one, the only element is the sanctions. Mm. But I don't think you... I don't know that you could say that that Putin isn't his buddy, because if you remember the Helsinki meeting, when he was Trump was asked the question, why in the face of the reports, not just from the United States intelligence services, but from allied services, Israelis, Germans, Australians, and Brits, and maybe the French, I'm not sure, that shows that Russia interfered in our election, why do you side with Putin? And Trump's response was, well, he told me that he didn't do it and I believe him. <laughs> right. Uh, how was that not sidling up to, to Putin? Yeah, no, I mean, I think so. Okay, there's a few different ways I would respond. First, like, let me be clear that Putin, that I think that Putin is, um, first of all, quite intelligent. And secondly, diabolical. I mean, he was in the KGB, you know, uh, or whatever the subsequent version of the yeah. KGB was. And um, GRU and, now. I think. Yeah, he's clearly uh, he's clearly one of the most sort of he's, he's a shark, man. You know, he's what Trump wishes he Trump could be. Um, so I'm not disputing that. But I, I guess I would say that I view their um, seeming familiarity and friendliness more through the lens of like the global oligarchic elite. Uh, you know, they're, they're both extremely wealthy, extremely powerful people who are, who are chums, you know, it's, I, I don't, I don't view it. So that to me is no surprise. What I hang, don't. Hang on. Yeah. Hang on. Tr they chumps in that context implies to me that they are they are dupes being used by other forces sorry i should i should have enunciated more clearly chums like pals oh chums yeah chums okay so um yeah so i don't but i guess maybe we should disentangle because there's two different ways of looking at this and you know they might be complementary or they might be uh incompatible one is that Trump and Putin are friendly and willing to do favors for one another, et cetera, et cetera. Another is that Trump is in some sense controlled by Putin. And that, that my understanding is that this, the latter, that, that 
control version is the one that animates the Russiagate conspiracy um, rather than the sort of friendliness and allied version. I mean, if you think back to what was it like the 2012 Democratic or not not Democratic presidential debates, uh, Mitt Romney was asked about who was the right. biggest threat to America, right? And he said Russia. Yeah. And Obama yeah. got him with that classic zinger, you know, like the 80s called you, they want their foreign policy back or some shit. So like Russia, you know, is not is not some evil adversary. And this links back to what I was saying back before about how this is continuous with other propaganda efforts that have been uh, popular in American history that have, you know, served to obscure American ruling class, you know, skullduggery by saying, oh, no, it's the Russians, you know, they're, they're the bad guys. It's not us. But I wa also want to circle back to two other things. So I think that's important. And I, and I hope you'll respond to like which side of that you fall on the, well, I the want, I, companions or the control and narrative. Okay. I, I just want to address first address the history. Okay. So uh, Russia stopped being a threat when the Soviet Union collapsed. And it's, I think it's pretty evident that the GOP lost its center because they now look, could no longer build everything they did around anti-communism. Right. And I think there's a fair amount of, of Democratic Party involvement in that as well. The difference I see is that Joe McCarthy in his Red Scare operated without any evidence at all. Mm. When McCarthy would stand up and wave the paper, I have a list of 120 people, in the federal government. He had no list. It was a yeah. blank piece of paper. There were no names. That was complete bullshit. Right. And it was uh, that was pure showmanship with no evidence and played to the fears of the American people and eventually was exposed. Mm. The difference for me is that you have clear evidence of Russian interference. Now, Russia wants to get back to the place where it, that it occupied as the Soviet Union, the great bugbear of the West, where, where the West focused its anxiety on the Soviet Union. Russia would love to get back to that, would love to be powerful enough. But all Russia has going for it is, it seems to me to be two things. One, it's a, a nuclear power. And two, it has great practice and ideas behind kleptocracy. Mm. They're probably some of the greatest thieves in the world. <laughs> so there are lessons to be learned there from them about that yes that's why uh, i say but, putin is what trump wishes he could be oh yeah i, I mean with you yes oh absolutely i do now so i just wanted to get to the history i see a complete divide between the, the mccarthy uh, anti-communism bit which was a, which was totally fabricated and had no basis in evidence mm. and russiagate which at its base has strong evidence for what how russia was interfering in our okay. election 
So, okay, then let's talk about the evidence because that's one of the issues for me as well, is that as far as I understand, one of the primary claims about Russian interference in the election was through manipulation of social media by Russian agencies or contractors or whatever. But also what I understand is that that the expenditures uh, by the Russian government or its affiliates on those programs were vanishingly small and, and pretty much entailed the use of like really corny memes. Like there was one of Bernie Sanders in like this technicolor pose going like this, like uh, in a bikini or like a speedo, like it was super weird. Um, point being is I don't, I just can't imagine that that swayed anyone or at least not to any significant extent. So maybe there's other activities that you're aware of that I'm not, that had a greater impact, but yeah, as far as I know, that, that was about it. Well, for me, the indictment isn't the amount of money spent by the GRU and their, uh, and their hackers. That demonstrated you don't need a lot of money to run effective propagandistic campaigns. Mm. They had a lot. The whole point of Manafort providing polling data from the Republican Party to the Russians was for them to target areas, which they did with ads. Now, I, I don't know about the meme of Bernie doing whatever that was. Um, but it, it, it was, was like the, overly muscular Bernie, like posing like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. Yeah. Like Trump with, with his head superimposed on Superman's body. Yeah. Or still uh, uh, Yeah. But it wasn't the amount of money spent because it just shows you don't need a lot of money. It was the, the, the use of memes and bots to create ads and uh, tweets and other crap that was just then bombarded certain sections of the electorate. Yes. I mean, there isn't so, any evidence that, that they hacked into machines. There's none of that. It was, right. it was this uh, a propaganda game that they were playing. Okay. Now, so whether, when... that had, whether that had an effect, whether that, that had a, a real, a dramatic effect, I, I, I don't know. Mm. I, I, but it was sufficient enough for the State Department, for all, for all the intelligence services to say to Obama, the Russians are interfering here, and for Obama to bring that to congressional leaders. Right? And then yes. we know what happened there. Mitch McConnell refused to announce it because he thought it would interfere with the election. I and mean, again, Mitch McConnell, <laughs> worse than Putin, but that's another story. Yeah, agreed. Um... So I guess, okay, it sounds like we basically agree on like what the evidence is, like the primary sort of um, smoking gun or whatever is that the Russians or their affiliates engaged in some kind of deliberate ad campaign, essentially, you know, targeted ad campaigns, propaganda. But you know, and here's where we propaganda. may disagree. We may disagree here with uh, help from members of the Trump campaign. Right. So you had alluded to Manafort's passing of certain polling data 
um, to one of his contacts or whatever. And right. what I, my understanding of that is that that it wasn't, it's not like it was top secret. It was just internal polling data that, I mean, the Russians could have conducted their own poll for that matter. Like it's not illegal to, to poll Americans, you know? Well, apparently it is. No, it's not illegal to poll Americans. Yeah. Uh, but it, it is to use internal documents from a campaign. I believe it is. I think it was part of the indictment, part of the Manafort indictment. I'm willing to uh, entertain the possibility that it's illegal uh, or that maybe the way that he did it turned out to be illegal. But even if we accept that, it still doesn't strike me as like, you know, earth shattering uh, behavior that, you know, again, rises to the level of like Trump is Putin's puppet, which is okay. what there, animates I, I, the Russiagate conspiracy. I think, yes, there are, I think, two conversations that we can have. One is Trump is Putin's puppet and conspired with Putin on numerous occasions to do something nefarious. Mm. The second is that the Trump campaign was involved with the Russians and somehow manipulating aspects of the election. Now, Maybe it wasn't illegal what Manafort did, but I'm pretty sure that he, if that's not, then he lied to the FBI about what he had done. Mm. And there was clear evidence of what he had done and he lied. So that lying to a federal agent is uh, a crime. But okay, so even if that's so, true, that doesn't, it still doesn't prove the theory. Crimes can be committed, you know, here without necessarily proving the, the larger narrative. And the larger narrative is from your perspective that Russia did not interfere in our, in our election. No, I, I, I definitely uh, recognize that they interfered in the way that we just mentioned with uh, what I would characterize as minimally effective use of memes and other sort of targeted ads uh, in an attempt to sway uh, people to support Donald Trump, or at least not to support Hillary Clinton. Right. Okay. So, so you and I, neither of us knows, maybe nobody knows how effective the ads were. We know that, that they were done. We both agree that they were done. We just don't know how effective it was. Sure. I'm basing this, that off of my understanding that it was like, they didn't do that much. So even if it, even if they convinced everyone who saw what they did, they didn't convince a large number of people. Certainly not enough to sway the election. Yeah we, we, yeah, we don't know because I don't know that any voter can say this is the ad that, that led me to vote for Trump. I, you know, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm just talking about that. their expenditures and things what, like that. Yeah, what, what I'm focused on is the illegality involved in the relationship between members of the Trump campaign and Russia. Hmm. Okay, so one of the aspects that we know is fishy, and I don't know that's illegal, but fishy for sure, was the attempt by Jared Kushner, who, who is apparently everybody's stooge, yeah. uh, for Jared Kushner to set up a back channel to the Russians by bypassing uh, any of our intelligence agencies. Mm. That strikes me as highly illegal, mm. but I don't know. 
But for me, it's the uh, it was the the covering up of the connections connections between Russia and the Trump campaign. That for me is where Russia Russia Gate falls. I mean, that's what that that for me is 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 what this is about. Now the so question you, then becomes, yeah. yeah. I was just going to oh, go say, ahead. you think that they're the Trump's sort of frantic uh, attempts to conceal some of these activities indicates, you know, guilt in some 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 sense. If I say to you, Rory, what were you doing talking? on the phone midnight with my wife. Right. And you say, I wasn't talking to your wife. And then it turns to my wife says, yes, he did. And I say, Rory, my wife said you did. And you go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I did. I'm thinking something's going on. Sure. It's Either suspicious. You're, you're, you're planning an elaborate surprise party for me <laughs> or something's happening behind the scenes. There's something right. suspicious there. Okay. So this wasn't a frantic cover up. This was an ongoing series of lies told by at least nine members of the Trump campaign, all highly placed about their connections to Russia. And the question I raise is why? If nothing's happening, what, what are you lying about it for? <laughs> right. You know, the first is, uh, you know, no, I didn't speak to them. And then, oh, I forgot that I had. Yes, come on. And then finally, people are indicted and they come forward and say, yes, I did. And then they're 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 indicted and they're found guilty and they go to prison. There's something happening here. Okay. And the only issue only issue for me is how high does it go, right? Yes. Now, do you deny that there were connections between Russia and the Trump camp? The higher high members of the Trump campaign? No, I think I think there very clearly were some connections and contacts between members of Trump circle and um, either like Russia, actual Russians, Russian people or their affiliates. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Russians. Yeah. We can name them. We can name them. Sure. But we I mean, it's, Russians are. Well, part of the reason why I'm like hesitant to say that is because to, for me, that plays into the logic of what I, I was identifying earlier, which is it's like you're just othering the Russians. It's like, oh, the Russians, the Russians, the Russians. This is part of my beef with Maddow is that she constantly couches things like this. You can't just, it, it's a rhetorical turn that I think is manipulative to be like, oh, they're, they're colluding with the Russians. They're, you know, it's, imagine saying that about like almost any other country or ethnic group. Oh, they're colluding with the Japanese. They're colluding with the Mexicans. Like it's just, it seems to me to be like obviously problematic to frame things in that way. But I would say because of our long antagonistic history with Russia, it's okay. Like we can just call, we can paint with such a broad brush when it comes to this big, scary quote unquote Russians. So that now of course brings me to Maddow, but I, maybe I well, should respond. What were you saying? I, maybe I should respond. Well, let, let me respond to what, what okay. you just said. Yeah. It isn't. Uh, it isn't the use of Russia as a way of connecting us back to a long train of fears about Russia and the Soviet Union. It isn't that. 
if you have nine members of the Trump campaign, all highly placed, lying about their connections, communications with Russians, you begin to wonder why they're doing it. Nobody's lying about connections to Japan or Germany or France or Guatemala. No, nobody's lying about that. What are you, why are you lying about it? And it seems to me when you have that number of people lying about that connection, there's something being covered up here. Mm. The first thought is it's a conspiracy. But according to the Mueller report, which I really encourage you to read. The one where he finds that there was no collusion. No, well, yes, he, <laughs> that was a mistake because yeah. he finds nothing but collusion. The problem is that Mueller was asked to see if there's a conspiracy among the, between the Trump campaign and Russia and elements of the Russian government. Mm. And he did not find evidence of a conspiracy. But going back to the Kennedy assassination, mm. and to borrow a line from, it wasn't Walter Cronkite, but somebody well-placed at the time, you have to be a fool to think that there was only a single shooter. You'd have to be a fool to think there wasn't something going on nefarious between the collusion, 220 meetings between Trump administrators and campaign officials and the Russians covered up. I mean, come on. That's <laughs> I, 220. So collusion is everywhere in the Mueller report. Conspiracy hmm. is not. Right? So they couldn't prove conspiracy. And so they didn't, they didn't go after that. But Trump latches on as, as did Bill Barr, this idea there was no collusion. That's complete horseshit. <laughs> yes. So that's, I, yeah. Okay. I, but, I'm conceding that. Like I'm, I, I would even concede, I probably wouldn't use the word collusion because it's been so poisoned, I think, by this discourse. But like, as I said a few minutes ago, like there were clear contacts, connections, communications between- Which were hidden, which yeah. were lied about and hidden. Okay. Yes. So, that, so this is, is bringing us back to where I think we went ahead. And then the question is, why? Why are, you, why are you lying about it? And if you're lying to cover something up, what is that? Mm. And that then gets into the suspicions about Trump's relationship with Putin and the Russian oligarchs. Yes. Okay. So, okay. I guess I'm not sure where to turn it from here, other than to say as I said earlier, that it's no surprise to me that global, transnational global elites have connections, shared interests. I mean, for a time, I thought that the promotion of Tillerson to Secretary of State was in order to gain access to Russia's oil reserves, which had been uh, forbidden by the Obama administration because Tillerson had a close personal relationship having previously received the Russian equivalent of the Medal of Freedom uh, right. from Putin, right? But that didn't come to pass, right? That's another example. It's like this, that's something that I would have, I, I did. And this is also part of why I'm pretty firm in my position on Russiagate is like, I was, I was open to this possibility early on. But over time, as more details, and especially at what I saw as just absolutely fatal fundamental contradictions between the narrative and the reality, 
emerged over the course of Trump's presidency. So we've been talking so much here about the campaign and the election. And some of that I'm willing to concede a little bit, like in terms of the contacts and whatnot. But there was very little, if any, follow through, I would argue, in Trump's presidency. Another example would be the whole situation in Venezuela. Venezuela is allied with Russia. The Trump administration tried endlessly to overthrow Maduro and install their CIA puppet, Guaido, in his place. And this brings me to another point about this narrative. It's pushed endlessly by spooks on corporate media. John Brennan, CIA, CIA spook. Why would we ever trust him or believe him? These, you know, people that I would say we euphemistically refer to as coming from the intelligence community, they come from espionage agencies. Their whole purpose is to lie to, primarily to the American public. So that for me is another thing that sort of just spoils the whole, it spoils the whole thing. Okay, so uh, my response. <laughs> the Tillerson issue wasn't about the United States gaining some access to Russian oil. It wasn't about that. Okay. It was about the deal that Tillerson, that Trump wanted Tillerson to make involving Giuliani with uh, whatever that Russian oil company is called. There was a, a deal they Rosneft? were trying to- What is it? Rosneft? Rosneft. Sound right? There yeah. was a deal in there that they were hoping Tillerson would be able to broker. Right. With Trump and Giuliani and some other players. That, so that was my understanding of Tillerson wasn't, wasn't, yes. So the fact that the, we didn't gain access to Russian oil or whatever that was about, that, that was an issue for me. Venezuela it, it is, is a gnat. Sure. They but have with, nothing that we need. We don't they need have their a oil. shit ton of oil. We don't need their oil. Yeah, and we, but we especially, we'd like it. <laughs> we especially wouldn't need it if we could get the, the Russian deal going. My well, that was that, that was just for, that was a personal oligarchic bullshit thing. Anyway, sure. um, my point with that is just if it's Putin's ally, Russia's ally, why would he be okay with us fucking with them? I, I don't know. And maybe it was a you know you you give us Ukraine, and we'll give you you, know, you we'll fuck around in Ukraine, you fuck around in Venezuela. I don't know what I don't know what the deal might have been, but I don't know that because uh, Brennan. And others are professional spooks that everything they say is a lie. So we know that we can substantiate a lot of what Brennan said about the election because there were independent agencies not tied to the United States giving us the same information about uh, uh, other intelligence media. services. Now, maybe a, a spook is a spook no matter what country you're in. And so they're all in collusion and they're all lying. But this now, creates a grand conspiracy narrative that is impossible to penetrate because everything <laughs> I say, as with QAnon, will have a counter narrative. I'm simply going on the evidence. Mm. For you, for example, you didn't read the Mueller report and maybe you won't read it because you think somehow it was, uh, I don't know what, but it's the basis of the evidence. I mean, the evidence was brought out and presented there. 
If you looked at the Mueller report and you said the evidence of these 200 collusive meetings between Russian agents and members of the Trump administration and the Trump campaign are fallacious, then I go, okay. Or if you said they don't amount to anything, I'd want to know how you think it doesn't. And I'd go back to the lying and the indictments mm-hmm. and why that apparently is meaningless. Well, yeah. The only, the only thing that this is worth talking about, I, because it, it strikes me that on the one hand, we're, I'm trying to base the argument on what the evidence appears to be that has been uncovered in the Mueller report and by intelligence agencies and by reporting by journalists. And your view that if it doesn't, if it isn't all tied up together, then the whole thing falls apart. I don't think that's the case. Mm. I think there's a basis of evidence here that there's collusion between Trump and his cronies and the Russians. You think there's some of that, but it doesn't amount to much. And that's where I think is key. What does it amount to? Yes. Yeah, right. I, I think that's a, a fair you know, framing. I do think, I think we do agree on much of the evidence and I have not read the whole Mueller report. I'm sure it's very long and boring written by a career FBI agent whom I'm not inclined to trust at all, but. But they are trained and skilled prosecutors who know, who know how to uncover evidence. No doubt. They had huge resources. They conducted uh, what, you know, year long uh, investigation or whatever. So I'm sure uh, there is valuable information and that if I were so inclined, I would read through it and, and make my own independent comprehensive assessment. But I have read an executive summary and I have read, you know, I, the conclusion and the findings, which is that there was no, you know, there was no conspiracy. No, <laughs> was... no hang on. That's not what the conclusion said. Okay. The conclusion said that if we had had definitive evidence we would have presented that as a case, right. but we cannot conclude there was no conspiracy. Okay, but that's spook talk. It's it's very similar to me to the way that you may recall during, I think it was during the Democratic primary, there was that story about Russian bounties on American soldiers' heads, which turned out to be a, a complete fabrication. It was based on uh, high confidence that then turned out to be mo- moderate confidence or something. How, how and, do you know that? Well, because there was testimony by figures, military, fi- high-ranking military figures in Afghanistan afterwards who categorically denied the existence <clears throat> of these so-called bounties. I completely but, accept that. Okay. Because I completely accept testimony providing evidence. And that's what I'm saying the Mueller report is. It's testimony (laughs) providing evidence. Okay. Yeah. On the one hand, you want to reject evidence on the other or not look at it. On the other hand, you're willing to accept it. I'm saying I'm looking at both. I'm what I, okay. It's not unusual to accept some testimony you find believable and convincing and to reject other testimony that you find preposterous. But it's not one person, Rory. It's not one person testifying that in Afghanistan, this, these events never happened. You have multiple sources giving you the same story and providing evidence under, testim- under perjury, right? You've got the same thing in the Mueller report. It's not one person. It's dozens and dozens and dozens of people 
telling you what is what has been going on, revealing what has happened. Plus, you have, again, the indictments against the members of the GRU. You've got indictments and convictions in the Trump administration. So all I'm saying is look at the evidence. Don't dismiss one set of evidence because you don't <laughs> think there's anything there, having not looked, and accept the other evidence that Afghanistan, that bounties was a was a sham. Yes, I get what you're saying. But I guess that this also leads us to another sort of um, layer or something that we would have to separate or disentangle because there's, so we already talked about how there's maybe two different ways of looking at the Trump-Putin relationship, close allies or control and controlled, controller and controlled. Right. Right, right. The and the it, useful the useful idiot versus the ally right. the, versus right. the chum, the chum 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 versus idiot. <laughs> right. Okay. And it seems to me, and I think you uh, tell me if I'm wrong. The prevailing view for among Russia Gators is that Trump was, if not wholly controlled, significantly and determinately, determinative, determinatively, hard word to say. Okay controlled. And because this goes back, and this is another thing I've been meaning to bring up, but we keep talking about other shit because there's so much to talk about with this is the <laughs> fucking steel dossier, right? The steel dossier, right. which is the catalyst for all this completely disproven. No, nothing, no evidence has ever come out for it. Most, you know, salaciously the, the P tape supposedly yeah. hit, you know, Trump pissing on prostitutes or whatever that was, being used to extort uh, Trump, right by right. by Putin. That was the claim. Right. That's the animating right. claim of Russia Gate. Total bullshit. No, I don't, know if I you... don't think it is. Okay. No, I disagree. Okay. I I, th I think you're right. I, I think both sides can point to the Steele dossier and find the things to support their position. So, for example, the information about. Uh, Papadopoulos came out of the Steele dossier, and that turned out to be completely true mm. because he he confessed and was indicted and convicted. And then, of course, said, no, I, it was all all bullshit. That, that is weird. But yes, there are lots of lots of elements of it that turned out not to be the case. Yes, I would say the so most it, important ones. Papadopoulos was nothing. And what he did was. Well, minimal, there, there were others I that I don't know that have come to light uh, uh, about a uh, Carter Page and some of the other, I don't know about Roger Stone, some of the other players, mm -hmm. but I think a lot of it was discredited. You're right. A lot of it was, was, was discredited. Uh, but again, the, the overwhelming evidence seems to me to point directly to this involvement with Russia. Okay. This brings us to the, to the chump slash useful idiot position. <laughs> right. I, I don't think <laughs> Oh, chum. Sorry, chump. Right, I did. Sorry, chum. Yeah. <laughs> but we know he's a chump. So yeah, that's yes. a given. So, so chump. Uh, I, I don't know anyone who, who that's, that's not true. I do not accept that Trump was controlled by the Kremlin or Putin. And there, there may be people like Brennan who make the claim that he, he is. He's a, he's a stooge. He's a Russian asset all that stuff. I, I don't know that that's true. I haven't seen any evidence of that. But there are these suspicious links that make me think that Putin 
and others may well have stuff on Trump or may have may have connections to Trump that can be useful to them. Mm. That isn't to say that they played Trump and they got things they wanted, but there are just these links. So if he's a chum of the global elites, it's pretty convenient to have the clubhouse at Trump Tower (laughs) because we know that Saudi oligarchs and Russian oligarchs and Chinese oligarchs all own properties in Trump Tower. Okay, maybe it's a really sweet clubhouse. (laughs) But my suspicion is that there's something else going on there. Yeah. And it may very well be similar to the property adjacent to Mar-a-Lago that a Russian oligarch bought tore the building down, did nothing with it, and somehow sold it for an incredible amount of money. I'm it not familiar smacks, with that, but that doesn't surprise me, honestly. It smacks of money laundering to me. Yes. Uh, and it may very well be that there's something about those Trump properties in Trump Tower have something to do with money laundering. I don't know that. I don't have any evidence for that. I'm completely suspicious that it's the case, but I would never say that that's evidence that Putin is controlling, is pulling the strings on Trump. No, I think Trump is a money launderer and sometimes he wants to do things that uh, help his buddies. But sometimes he he says, I can't, I can't do that. I can't go that far. Yes. That's my view. I completely agree with that. I mean, like Trump is a criminal. Like he, he's a yeah. born criminal. His dad was a criminal. His son's a criminal though. They're just inveterate criminals, but that's, you know, you have the, the president, the office of the presidency of the United States is a criminal position in my view. Like it's everyone who has ever been president has been a criminal, but so like, it's no, it's no surprise or, you know, whatever to me that that's the case. My issue with Russiagate is that I think the strong version as opposed to the weak version prevails that Trump is controlled by Putin. I think that's completely bonkers and evidence-free and it has been pushed. Well, well, you don't think it's completely bonkers. You think it's evidence-free. Yeah. But if it turned out that Trump owed Putin hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. If there was convincing evidence, I would accept it. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So that may come out through these investigations in the Deutsche Bank and uh, maybe his tax return. Uh, that's not going to be in there probably, but we, we don't know. But it seems that if you, if you are a completely failed businessman, failing to the tunes of, to the tune of billions of dollars, and you're able to get financing from sources, I think you'd be suspicious of the sources. So we know one source for sure is Deutsche Bank. Mm. And we know that that's shady to begin with, and that's being investigated. You then got the Wilbur Ross connection with these offshore accounts. uh, And then you've got the the various oligarchs around the world. You got that connection with Trump. So yes, there's all kinds of shady shit going on here. Yes. As the Panama Papers showed us a few years ago, right? All the wealthy elite have all their money offshore. It's a big club and we ain't in it, as Carlin says, you know. But but if if your position is, I'm if your position is something like the following, 
I'm pretty sure Trump is in, is in a lot of pockets and a lot of pockets that happen to be Chinese and happen to be Russian and happen to be Israeli and happen to be Saudi. But why is that any worse than being in the pocket of the American mafia mm-hmm. or the Russian mob in the United States or you know, some d- domestic oligarchs pockets? Is that your position? That who cares if it's domestic or if it's international? The president of the United States can be jerked around by domestic oligarchs. Who cares if he can be jerked around by foreign oligarchs? Uh, I mean, yeah, essentially, I would I would say that uh, there's very little difference. But I I I think that's always been the case. Well, I I I think it might be different with Trump and the foreign elements. Mm. Uh I, I think that might be different. The level of sleaze, I, I can't judge the level of sleaze of prior presidents. It, it's been, I mean, there's sleaze clearly there, but I, I don't, and I don't know that I could identify every president. Was Obama sleazy? I mean, Bush seems sleazy to me. Obama this- was one of the sleaziest, in my opinion. Look at the look at the, his emails uh, that were released by WikiLeaks from his transition in 2008 when he took came into office. Fucking Citibank picked his whole cabinet, like they just handpicked everyone. Well, he I sold thought, out to well, the bankers instantly. Yeah, I think that I think that's a criticism of of his administration. But I I thought we were talking about the level of of incrimination mm. to the man to the right to the office of the president oh like in like uh individually sort of uh yeah, over I mean, a barrel for certain people certain yes interests. which i think is the the concern about trump and putin but i think you and i are in agreement that it's not just going to be putin he's just one of many right okay so and if he's and if he's one of many why would he be beholden to to, to putin instead of to she in china or to the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, or to Bibi in in Israel. Well, I think we, you and I would say well, he's beholden to all of them. <laughs> I mean, he's he's a and Republican. In some ways, in some ways, they're beholden to him. He's still and they are beholden to him. It's yeah. yes, one hand feeds the other, right? Uh, but so that's why I, that's why I, I I push back on Biden. I mean, sorry, on Obama because I think right. personally, I don't think he was involved. I think he was played. Yeah. Uh, I think he was. I think he was uh, really inexperienced. I think he got played. He got played by the ec- economic side. And he got played by the military side. So he got played by the military-industrial complex. Sure. Yeah. You want to talk about chumps? That, yeah, so yeah, but I, but I don't think he was personally a, a grifter, uh, the way Trump is. So that's that's why I made that distinction. You know, I that's fair. Look, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to cut this off. Well, we but, can pick up here. You know, there's plenty more to talk about. I haven't trashed Matt on nearly enough. Oh, no, we haven't even gotten to her as yeah. a propagandist, which would be which would be interesting. So, yes, we can definitely pick that up. Yes. I'm trying to think if there was anything else I wanted to say in response to what you just said. No. So we'll end there. Well, in and uh, playing it back, because I know you study these encounters deeply. Yes. And and at length. You may, you may find you have some things to say. Oh, but I'm happy yeah. to pick it up. 
there, I do remember, I'll just drop this here and we can pick up maybe there next time. Okay. Is, uh, I, the, it's important, I think, to look at the genesis of the narrative as well. So we talked about the Steele dossier, which yeah. I think is complete, thoroughly uh, you know, debunked, at least in any way that matters. But also my understanding is that the very night that, of the election when Clinton lost, uh, Podesta had already begun to spin this narrative saying that we must pin or frame Trump as being uh, uh, beholden to the Russians. And part of why I think that's important is, first of all, that there were internal memos that were leaked by WikiLeaks uh, from the Clinton campaign that identified one of her greatest weaknesses as the possibility that she could be portrayed as being beholden to Russian interests owing to the large donations to the Clinton Foundation, uh, or maybe it was speaker, uh, speaking fees to Bill Clinton personally, I can't remember, one of the two, maybe both, from Russians or Russian affiliates. And so that I think is a, a bit of political jujitsu on Podesta's part, but also, and this would, this was something that will take us off. And I'm just going to mention it is that I think circling back to something we talked about earlier, a trauma informed perspective. I think it's worth examining Russiagate, what I would characterize as the hysteria or even a, you know, fourth red scare or whatever number around Russiagate as a sort of response, collective response to the trauma of Trump's election, which, which took many, if not most or nearly all liberals by surprise. And I mean, I was in New York when he was elected. It, and it, it, it took most of the GOP by surprise. That too. Certainly when he was nominated as, and then of course, no, it took Trump elected. Yeah, I mean, there's that picture of Trump where he is like crestfallen that he won that night. Sure. Um, But like I was saying, I was in New York City when it happened and the the city was gloomy. And one of my professors at the time said that it was the gloomiest that he had seen the city since September 11th when he was there for that. So just positing that as a strand that may be interesting to pursue either as part of this continued conversation or its own line of inquiry, um, the sort of ideological reaction to Trump's election that was in some significant way a, a trauma response. So okay. that's it. That's my closing statement. We can pick that up Okay. next time. On the Bullshit Artists. And until then, so long. Peace out.
Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. 